0: Well, i got a question for you as we begin this morning. uh, How many of you would self-assess that you're a little competitive? Raise your hand if you just tend to be in it to win it, whatever it might be. Okay, some hands going up. How about those of you that are just not very competitive at all? Recognize there may be some in between or there may be situational competitiveness, but many people are just content to sit and watch the competitive people duke it out, right? I got to give you some full disclosure on the front end here. I tend to be pretty competitive, right? Heather, not so much. She is, uh, she doesn't really even want to play games sometimes because I get competitive. The boys take after me more than they take after her. And so a friendly game of Uno can get pretty heated sometime, right? And uh, accusations can be made or, you know, cards can be thrown down and it it just, it's interesting. Now, go fish with toddlers or letting them win every now and then so that they don't get their little spirits crushed. That's helped a little bit. And we've started this thing where we invite people over to our house, and when they ask what can they bring, we say, well, bring a board game. Um, and we'll play a board game together. or We have some games that we like to play, and it's a great way to get to kind of know people beyond the news, weather, and sports that you talk about when you're first getting to know somebody. And, and uh, it's, it's fun, and yet I have to be restrained in those moments, because I'm their pastor, right? Like, I can't get too competitive when it's church folk that are over for dinner. And so I've made some progress. Some might say I still have a little ways to go. In fact, uh, I got the opportunity to speak to the youth this past Wednesday. I get invited about once a year to do that, and whenever I do that, I make sure that I come for the whole evening so I'm not just like flying in, flying out, you know, sitting in my green room or something like that. So the game was toilet paper dodgeball, And so, of course, I'm chucking toilet paper at little middle school girls, you know, because that's who we're against, and that's how the game is played, and I had to bring it in a little bit. It's like, okay, hold on. It's okay. And then I got out twice by the same person, and I was a little miffed about that. So just (laughs) suffice to say, I tend to be more on the competitive side of the equation. Well, we're in a new series titled Kingdom Families, and this introduction will make a little more sense later in the message. But we're spending five weeks focusing on families, and honestly, each message could be a series of its own. But we're focusing on family matters because families matter. They matter to you, your family, and other families. They matter to you. They matter to God. They matter to us as a family of families, and they matter to the world around us. And so we're looking at kingdom families and we're asking what should be unique or, or what should be noticeable about a kingdom family as opposed to one that's not in the kingdom of God. And I mentioned last week, and I'll probably mention this each week because it's just true, that family is both the source of the greatest joy… And the greatest peace, a refuge that you can return to, like that's what family is intended to be. And when you celebrate a milestone with family, that is a special milestone, whether it's a birth or a first birthday party, whether it's a wedding anniversary, a college graduation, anything in between, family matters. And those celebrations can be some of the highlights of our whole lives when we look back on them. And yet on the flip side, Family can be the source of great hurt and pain when family is suffering or when families are broken or relationships are broken within family. It carries its own weight and gravity. And so when we talk about our vision to be and increasingly become a healthy family of families, it underscores the value of family. And I remember when I first got here and we were talking through this and seeking to clarify what is the mission, what is the vision, what are the core values that this church is going to be focused on in this next season, we were intentional about adding the word healthy because we recognize that family doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. If you grew up in a broken family or a dysfunctional family, family means something to you. That it doesn't mean maybe to somebody who grew up in a very healthy family. And we wanted to provide the church as a healthy family of families. Recognize some people might need to be reparented. Some people might need to learn how to do family relationships in a healthy, functional way. And we wanted to be a church that was for the family. So we've made strategic investments in children's and youth ministry and seeking to bring discipleship to to husbands and wives and, and teaching how to follow Christ. In an authentic way. So last week I kicked things off with a message titled King's Kids. And we started with the widest possible purview or the widest possible view that we're all current or potential children of God. And I talked about concentric circles that this applies to. And so I started just right at the very beginning. Like the circle of one. You and the person in the mirror. Do you treat that person consistently like they are a child of God? And maybe there's a relationship that needs to be initiated. Maybe you need to come into the family of God. Like Jesus said, anyone who comes, I will give the right to become children of God. You have an opportunity to step into a relationship with God and be a part of his family through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you treat the person in the mirror every morning like they're a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights? Because some of us aren't that kind to ourselves. Some of us have a harsh inner critic. And it breaks God's heart the way that we tell ourselves lies about ourselves. But then there's concentric circles beyond that. And so in our immediate family relationships, our marriage, our parenting, our parent-child relationships with with our parents and our brothers and sisters and, and moving out from those concentric circles into extended family and friends and the world around us. A prayer that I encourage you to pray, if this was hitting home, was, God, help me to see blank as you see blank. So help me to see my spouse as you see my spouse. Help me to see myself as you see me. Help me to see my kids, my parents, my siblings, my extended family, those around me. Help me to see them the way that you see them, because we're all current or potential children of God. So today, we narrow the focus a little bit from everybody to marriage. We're going to be talking about a kingdom marriage. And if you're not married, don't check out, don't get your phone out and start scrolling your social media or playing Angry Birds. Does anybody play Angry Birds anymore? No? No hands are going up for Angry Birds. That's so... Oh, there's one. Okay, good. So that... I'm still hip. I'm still with it. but I want to encourage you, if you're not married, don't just come to church for you. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if you're not married, you know somebody who is. And maybe there's something in this message for them, and it's going to come to them through you. Maybe you're going to share the message. Maybe you're going to share a point from the message. Maybe you're just going to really focus on praying for a couple or praying for an individual. So if you're not married, don't check out. And on the flip side, if you've got a phenomenal marriage, you're not off the hook either because you should be investing into other marriages. If your marriage is that great, then maybe there's somebody that you could make a strategic investment in their marriage. Who could you encourage? Who could you pray for? Who could you mentor? Now, last week I mentioned that family can be a source of guilt or shame or regret. And I just want to remind you, this is a shame-free zone. We don't do shame here. And we rebuke the enemy who tries to bring shame into the equation with what you're hearing in this room or if you're watching online. We just say, this is a shame-free zone. And I want to encourage you, if you're sitting next to your spouse, keep the elbows in, right? None of this. Oh, that one's for you, honey. Were you taking notes? None of that. If I see it, I'll probably even call it out. I'll say, oh, no, 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 no. And none of those looking over your glasses, Don't do that either, all right? Because I got eyes. I can see it. And this next thing I say, I was listening to a podcast. They were interviewing somebody, and he dropped this line, and I don't even think, I think it was just right off the cuff. But it might be why some of you are in church this morning, just to hear this line. And that line is, you cannot hate yourself into being a better person. And I was just like, whoa, and I paused it. And I wrote it down. I've been reflecting on that for some time. Bringing it back to the person with the harsh inner critic, you can't hate yourself into being a better person. You just can't. And now applying this to marriage, you can't hate your spouse into being a better person either. You can't hate your kids into being a better person. You really can't hate anybody into being a better person. But, and this is the flip side, and this is so important, God can love you into being a better person. Jesus can forgive you into being a better person. The Spirit can lead you into being a better person. That's what we're here to talk about. We're talking about transformation. We're talking about new creation. We're talking about change. To the core of who we are, it's possible. And that's the good news of the Gospel. And so we're going to camp out in Ephesians chapter 5 today. You might have had a guess if you were placing bets on where the passage was going to be when you heard it was about marriage. You probably put some money on Ephesians 5. There's a phenomenal passage on Christian marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. But I'm going to approach it a little differently than I have in the past. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Ephesians 5. If you need a Bible, we have them in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those, open it up to page 1823. And Ephesians 5 is a really cool chapter. Ephesians is a great, great letter. It's one of the broadest in application. Some letters are very specific to things that are happening in a specific church that we then can learn from. But Ephesians was very broad. It was widely circulated. There's more copies of Ephesians than there are, I think, of any other New Testament letter because it was widely circulated. And the first half of it is all theological, and Paul is laying out the gospel and what's important about the gospel. And then he turns a corner in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and he becomes intensely practical. Now that we understand all this about the gospel, here's what it looks like in our lives. And by the time he gets to chapter 5, he opens this chapter up, and I want to focus on these first two verses real quickly, and then we'll skip down to our main passage here uh, at the end of the chapter. But he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's saying, I've taught you all this stuff in the first three chapters. We've started to make that application of that through the do's and the don'ts and be nice and, you know, play fair and all those types of things. Now, let's take it a next step. Be imitators of God. Like kids imitating their father, right? For better or worse. Sometimes it's the manners and you're so proud of them. If you had really good manners and you prioritize manners and then you hear your children speak with good manners, you're really excited about that. Other times it's for worse. Where you smash your thumb and you said a word and you let the hammer fly and then you hear that word out of your kid's mouth later and you're like, oh, dang. Don't be an imitator of me in that setting. Thank goodness we can be imitators of God in every setting that he loves with a perfect love that he loves unconditionally. And that is what is in view when Paul says be imitators of God as dearly loved children. There's a father-child relationship that we have with God. And then he takes it another step and he says, and live a life of love just as Christ, your older brother, loved you and gave his life for you, we've got four sons. It's, it's so clear to see that little brothers want to be like their big brothers. They want to do what their big brothers are doing. Our older two have gotten into working out and fitness. Guess what? The younger two got into working out and fitness, and now you see them, you know, doing their pull-ups and doing their push-ups and doing the different things because they want to be like their older brother. Well, you have an older brother in Jesus Christ, and Paul is saying, follow his example. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us. It's a pretty high bar. It's a pretty high standard that has been set. And so that's what's at the beginning of chapter 5. Then the next 18 verses, verse 3 through verse 20. Are all about practical teachings on living together in communities. You can read those and you can make lists on those, and there's some really good stuff there. You should do that. You should read your Bible every day. This would be a great place to spend some time today if you don't already have something. But in verse 21, he sort of summarizes all of that and transitions all of that into some practical examples of these teachings lived out in Christian households. And so he's speaking to Christians. If you're just here as a visitor or not a believer yet in Jesus Christ, you've got to understand he's speaking to Christian households here. He's casting a vision for the lives of those in Christian households and giving practical examples of what this looks like. So verse 21 is a very much a transitional verse tying the teachings to these practical examples. And so you get into things like marriage and parenting and slaves and masters up through the first few verses of chapter 6. Now, we don't do slaves and masters anymore, thank God, but you are often an employee of someone. And so in that sense, what is written to slaves applies to you as a good employee. Or if you happen to be an employer, then there are some words that speak to you. But Christian households were often agricultural or based around a business or something like that, a family business. And, and so, that is why that is included there. But this verse that we need to start with, Ephesians 5.21, says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It doesn't say submit to one another out of reverence for each other, does it? Because you're not always going to feel like having reverence for each other. But if you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, if the blood of Jesus has washed you completely clean and your destination for eternity is now heaven instead of hell, then you ought to be able to submit to one another out of reverence for Him, out of reverence for Christ. In fact, I kind of reversed the order of the phrases in my mind because I think it adds a little bit more weight to the reverence for Christ. If we say, out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another, putting that first. And so verse 21 sort of marries, get that, yeah, marriage, marries everything before it to everything after it. And so let's look at this bottom line and then we'll see how this fleshes out. The bottom line today brings us back to our introduction. The bottom line is that a kingdom marriage is a submission competition. A kingdom marriage, a really healthy marriage, is a submission competition competition, where there are unique roles, those unique roles do exist between husband and wife within the marriage, but Christ is the example for both the husband and the wife in this submission competition, because He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so, what if your marriage was a friendly competition to see who could be the most Christ-like? towards the other person? To who could be the most humble, the most selfless? Who could be the most like Christ in that relationship? And what would that look like? Would that be a healthy relationship if both husband and wife were in a friendly competition to submit first, to put the other first, to serve one another in love, to be humble? And so in this passage that follows, 22 through 33, which you probably heard at the last wedding that you went to because it's just that familiar. It's kind of top of, the, top of the mind, tip of the tongue when it comes to marriage. But in the first three verses, Paul addresses wives specifically because wives have a unique role in their marriage. And he says, "'Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior." Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, a lot of times men just wish we could just put verse 22 on a sticky note, right? And put that on the, on the mirror. We don't need to go any farther until we get this one right. And so we say, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And yet Paul doesn't stop there, so we shouldn't either. And I want to clarify, before we go any farther, what it does not say. It does not say, husbands, subjugate your wives. It's not a license for abuse or for a domineering attitude. It's an invitation to a submission competition. And so, while he starts with wives, he moves on to husbands very quickly and actually has about two and a half times as much to say to us men as he does to our wives. Maybe it takes a little longer to get into our thick skulls. I don't know why, but there's a lot more that is said to men than is said to women. And verses 25 through 32 address us specifically because we also have a unique role in a marriage. And so verse 25, he says, "'Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church.'" and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, whoever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church, and that's an example that is given for both husbands and wives, that this relationship between Christ and the church is in view in both cases. And so for men, there is a role of headship or leadership in that relationship, and there is an additional accountability that comes with it. It's not all about title, and authority, and privilege. It comes with a very heavy responsibility to be the spiritual leader in your home. And so, I have noticed in my own life and in the lives of those who maybe have come to me or that I have observed casually as a bystander, that there's a progression. That on one side, you might have total autocratic nature of a husband. It's my way or the highway. Dad lays down the law and they think that's leadership. On the flip side, clear on the other end of that progression or that continuum would be total absence. Not making any decisions, not providing any leadership, just not re- connected relationally or in any other way. And so, whether it's absence or being very autocratic in your leadership, both extremes miss the mark completely. And I believe that the mark, as we see from our Heavenly Father and from Christ, our older brother, is authenticity. Not being autocratic, not being absent, but being authentic, being relationally connected, caring, leading by example, even in the area of submission. And so both husbands and wives will probably often find these Charges impossible at worst or miserable at best to complete apart from Christ Like if you're on your own This is hard work Sometimes you're not gonna feel like it But fortunately, we're not on our own. Fortunately, Christ is with us Christ is in us through the Holy Spirit living within us and we are not on our own And so that's why it's so important that Paul begins this whole section by saying do it out of reverence for Christ Because you're not always gonna feel like doing it out of reverence for anybody else but if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can do this out of reverence for him. You can submit to one another out of reverence for him. And verse 33 really summarizes this whole teaching on mem- on marriage with this powerful powerful statement. Each one of you husbands must love your wives. Your wife, sorry. It is single in scripture. Not going to go down that road, okay? Just read the verse, Mark Each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. How many of you were around in the 60s? You don't have to raise your hands too high if you don't want to. There was a song that came out in the 60s by the Beatles. You know which one I'm thinking of? All you need is love. Right? John Lennon, little theology from John Lennon. All you need is love. Well, Phil from Duck Dynasty a few years ago, he took issue with that. He said, yeah, well, what do you think? You're going to live on love? Uh-uh, doesn't work like that. You're going to starve. One of you better be able to cook, right? One of you better be able to cook or you're going to starve. You can't live on love. You can't eat love. But interestingly enough, I think pop culture echoes this idea of all you need is love. And Jesus, we're told in John's gospel, came full of grace. And truth. Grace representing love, representing the grace of God, the love of God extended to us through Jesus, and also truth. Tim Keller writes on this passage saying, Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really. Hear it. Authenticity is going to be a marriage of love and truth. And that is what we are called to. And so Paul would say to the Ephesian church here in verse 33, to the Colossian church in chapter 3 of Colossians, all you need is love and respect. There has to be a respect. And what's interesting, the way he breaks it down in verse 33, women, by The majority, I know I'm not not painting with too broad of a brush here, I recognize there are exceptions to every rule, but women by nature are more loving. They communicate in a nurturing, loving, intimate communication, right? Men on the other hand, whether it's military or, or these different service professions, where they speak more of a language or they interact in a language of respect and honor. And so he tells the women to do what doesn't come naturally. He says, women, I know it's easy. You're hardwired to be loving and nurturing, but I want you to show respect to your husband because that's what he needs most. And men, I know you're hardwired for this respect language and this respect currency, but I want you to be intentionally loving towards your wife because it's what she needs most. And so, yes, there are exceptions to every rule, but I would say this is very true and where contemporary and pop psychology emphasizes love and even opposes respect or any language about submission, there may be a need for us to renew our minds. Like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so love and respect are... in incredibly important ingredients as we see from Scripture in a kingdom marriage. And I've shared these diagrams before from love and respect, this crazy cycle, an energizing cycle. Emerson Egrich was a pastor for 30 years, had a PhD in psychology, saw this over and over and over, and one day it just kind of hit him when he was looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. He said, you know, There's a relationship between love and respect, and between the man and the woman in a relationship and the love and respect, and he called the first cycle a crazy cycle. The crazy cycle says that without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love. That makes sense, right? But what happens when he reacts without love? Well, she reacts without respect, and then he reacts without love. And she reacts without respect, and that's the crazy cycle. If you've ever been in, on the crazy cycle, you know it's aptly named. It's crazy. It's no fun for anybody. And the good news is that that's not the only cycle. That sucker spins in the other direction, and that's called the energizing cycle. And the energizing cycle says that his love motivates her respect. Her respect motivates his love. And then his love motivates her respect and her respect motivates his love. And that cycle spins and it's energizing. And you wake up and every day's better than the day before. And you can't wait for what's going to happen next instead of the crazy cycle. I've spent time on both cycles. I, I prefer the energizing cycle. Anybody else? Like I prefer when my love is motivating her respect and her respect is motivating my love. And so often as I explain this to couples... They'll say, okay, so how do you get off the crazy cycle and on to the energizing cycle? Great question. And I love to give the answer. The answer is, whoever sees themselves as the more mature in the relationship will reverse the cycle. <sighs> and you see what I did there? Whoever sees themselves as the more mature in the relationship will submit out of reverence for Christ, will choose to be loving or respectful even in the absence of respect or love and reverse the cycle. And you might even try some language like this. When you feel disrespected, man, I don't want you to say, well, that was disrespectful. Fall in line. No, you say, ooh, that felt disrespectful to me. You're not casting an accusation. You're just saying the truth. That felt disrespectful to me. Then you ask the power question, did I do something that felt unloving to you? This is a powerful, powerful way to reverse the cycle. Ladies, it works for you too, just slightly different language. Instead of responding without respect, again, even if that's like unconscious, as soon as you feel like you're about to, you say, whoa, time out. That thing you just said or that thing you just did felt unloving to me. Did I do something that felt disrespectful to you? You're not even owning that you meant to. You just might have stumbled into it. I do this all the time. I step in it, and I realize it a little too late. Oh, dang it. Right? But if I can hit time out, push pause, breathe, count to 10, whatever you have to do, and say, wow, that, that felt pretty disrespectful. Did I do something that felt unloving to you? Now we have an opportunity to get off that crazy cycle. We can get on that energizing cycle. And this illustrates a really important principle that marriage is not 50-50. No good relationship is 50-50. Marriage is 100-100. Because 50-50 marriages end in divorce about 50% of the time. That's just the reality in the church and out of the church. But when you're both willing to go 100%, not to walk up to the line and say, well, I've done my part, are you willing to do your part? But we say, no, I'm going to go all the way, whether you meet me halfway or not, then you run into each other in the middle, and it's wonderful if you're both doing that. And there are seasons in life where your spouse may not have 100 to give. They may not have 25, but if you're willing to give 100, you're going to be okay and vice versa. You see, marriage is 100-100. to And it's 100% love and 100% respect. It's not all love. It's not all respect. Both people need both. Men, by nature, tend to need respect a little bit more. And women, by nature, tend to need love a little bit more. And yet, if we're willing to communicate these things, to submit ourselves out of reverence for Christ, man, that can be a powerful, powerful marriage that is a witness to the goodness of God in your life and to those around you. Because our bottom line today is a kingdom marriage is a submission competition. And so as our worship team makes their way up here, I want to ask you, what does that look like for you? What does it look like for you? What does it look like for your marriage? To those that are married, we're going to kind of narrow the focus here. And there may be some listening to this in this room or watching online, and you're like, man, we need some serious help. Then I want to encourage you to get that help. It might be expensive, but it's worth it to get the help. You might need to cut the cable. You might need to scale back a vacation to, to get some good marriage counseling, we can help with some referrals, we can help where we can help, but we recognize we're not licensed marriage and family therapists, and I think some pastors do a disservice by trying to be what they're not. If a marriage needs serious help, then it needs serious help from a trained, qualified professional. I'm a strong believer in that. I go to counseling. Guys, you can go to counseling. Ladies, you can go to counseling. It's good for you. You might need to do that. And it might be expensive, but I guarantee you, divorce is expensive. It might be difficult, but divorce is difficult. And so I want to encourage you, if the Spirit is nudging you in that direction, to make sure that you take that step. I also want to give one little caveat here, because the last thing I would ever want is for somebody to stay in an abusive relationship where there's no repentance and no desire to change on the part of the abuser. You say, well, I went to church and the pastor told me I just needed to stay. You need to get safe, first and foremost. Get yourself to safety and then get help. And if that marriage can be reconciled, praise the Lord. And if it can't, you can be safe and you can know that, that there is option for that. Maybe you just need to tune up. You know, like... You're driving down the road and you start hearing a little knocking in your car, a little noise in your car. Yeah, maybe it'll go away. And then it doesn't go away. It comes back. It comes back more often. It comes back louder. Maybe, maybe that's kind of the situation that's coming to mind, and, and you're thinking, I just need a tune-up. Well, then get a tune-up. Talk to somebody. It doesn't have to be 12 sessions, it could be one or two sessions, it could be, we've got a resource that's available to you through our church called Symbus Plus. Symbus stands for Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. It was designed for premarital counseling and they found that it was so effective in opening up really good conversations in premarriage that they modified the Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts assessment to fit married couples, whether you've been married for one year or 10 or 50. Simbus Plus asks each of you questions that you can answer and those become the basis of a conversation. There's a little video that kind of runs you through a report. You get like a 20-page report that's unique to you and the information that you have provided. And it talks through all kinds of things. It talks through money. It talks through who's going to do what and how do you feel about that. It talks uh, through family relationships and how those can be difficult to navigate. It talks about sex. It talks about all kinds of stuff. That might be a conversation that you just don't know quite how to get into, but maybe this would provide you an on-ramp. And so the Simbus Plus, I'm uh, certified or whatever. I took some training and did an assessment myself. And, and so I'm certified. Pastor Zach, Pastor Ryan, as part of his uh, residency program, got certified to be a Symbus uh, certified facilitator. And so we can help you with this. If you're interested, just send me an email. Say, I'd like some more information about Simbus. There is a cost. It's a very nominal fee, 35 bucks. If that's the only thing holding you up, let us know. We'll take care of, figure out a solution to that. And lastly, maybe you're listening to this, like I said at the beginning, and your marriage is great. Like, it's awesome. You're on the energizing cycle all the time. Then I cannot encourage you strongly enough to find A couple and start investing in them. Whether they're a young couple, maybe it's somebody in your family, a new married, maybe it's somebody that you're just aware of and you could reach out to them. And you don't even have to say, hey, I noticed your marriage is in trouble. You just don't do that. That's what I would maybe say. Just say, hey, could we hang out? And then you have them over for ice cream and pie and you visit for a little while. And then, guy, you just take that young man into the garage and start talking and get him to open up and share. Ladies, you could go have a cup of tea or do whatever ladies do when guys are out in the garage talking. And, and maybe that could invest in that marriage and create a marriage mentor that would be helpful. Keep in mind, you don't have to fill their cup and be the end-all solution. You just have to empty yours. God has filled your cup. Just be willing to empty it in somebody else's life. Share with them what you know. And as we close, I want to encourage you, the altars are open. These middle altars generally indicate that you'd like somebody to come put a hand on your shoulder and pray for you. And whether that's a pastor or just a casual observer, sees somebody go to the middle altar, you're willing, you're you're welcome to go and put a hand on them and pray for them. Maybe you want to be left alone. You can go to these altars in the corners and pray there, and somebody. Everybody will just leave you alone. I want to break down that stigma, like going to the altar, there's something wrong. There's nothing wrong. In fact, something's right when you're responding in faith. Maybe a husband and wife want to go to the altar and April 23rd, 2023 is a day when a lot of things changed because we went to the altars together. We laid some things down at those altars. We got up from those altars hand in hand, whatever the case may be. If there's something to confess, confess it. If there's something to repent of, repent of it. If there's this commitment that the Holy Spirit is laying upon your heart, Make that commitment today. Take that step of faith. Maybe even take it together. And like I said a couple weeks ago, we're, we're celebrating baptism today. If today's the day that you're supposed to be baptized, you didn't know it until now, come and see Pastor Zach by these doors. We've got clothes you can change into. We would love to celebrate your baptism today. Or maybe it's sometime in the future. Mark the box on your connection card and let us know, and we'll open up that conversation. However you choose to respond, I just hope and pray you'll respond in faith to whatever the Spirit has said to you today. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word and we are thankful for your example. You don't just tell us to do something, you showed us how to do it. You showed us how to submit to one another. Help us to learn submission. Help us to learn how to submit to you out of reverence for Christ. Whatever our next step is, Lord, help us to take it in faith and to experience all that you have for us, to live out the vision that you've cast for our lives. I pray for marriages, Lord. I pray for families. I pray for transformation and healing. And I pray that we would all start to see our marriages as a submission competition and that that would open new doors in our lives together with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.